I'll tell you something I love about being in France, in addition to some seriously delicious butter, and that is the wide selection of wines I can find in France for low prices. It can be much more difficult to source those same bottles back in the States, and that's why I love to buy wines out of France with Ideal Wine. I have bottles shipped to me, hassle-free. It's easy. Ideal Wine has a new auction every week and is a great source for iconic names like Ouette, Louis Roeder, and Domaine Lefleve, as well as rising stars like Arnaud Lachaud, Gonon, and Tissot. Find the wines you'd rather be drinking at idealwine.com. That's I-D-E-A-L-W-I-N-E.com and have the wine shipped to you in the States. Use the promo code FIRST, F-I-R-S-T, for $15 off your first order of $150 or more. Hey, that's $15 you could save, and that is some good butter money. See for yourself at Ideal Wine. I'll drink to that, where we get behind the scenes of the beverage business. I'm Levy Dalton. I'm Erin Scala. And here's our show today. We can thank the Dutch for many things. We can thank them for tulips, for Rembrandt, for President Martin Van Buren, and for Great Bordeaux. Yep, you heard me, that's right. I said we can thank the Dutch for Great Bordeaux. Allow me to explain. 55% of the Netherlands is below sea level, so water control and flood prevention has long been a big issue in the government for centuries. Since the 1200s, water control boards have been working on the flooding issues by managing water barriers and waterways. These water control boards could levy taxes, and they played a big role in the formation of the Netherlands as a cohesive nation. The Netherlands is one instance where a national geographic issue such as water helped them solidify into a nation. This highly organized system of water control was so efficient was such a feat of modern engineering that these systems were very attractive to wetland regions that were looking for solutions to their own water problems, such as Bordeaux in the 17th century. Dutch engineers were called in and they started by building water blocking levees around wetlands and draining the built up water out to the river in canals. If you go to Bordeaux today, you'll see many such canals leading out to the river. Great wineries saw the successes of these systems, and in the 1800s, many installed their own drainage pipes to carry water from the vineyards to the sea. In the year Mark Twain was born, right around the time when Edgar Allan Poe and Charles Dickens were working on some of their classics, the good people over at Chateau Latour were building stone drains to manage water in their vineyards. Interestingly, water management is only allowable in some forms in Bordeaux. Irrigation, not allowed except with special AC permission and all sorts of permits. Tarps to prevent rainfall, verboten. Drainage pipes, levees, canals, and premeditated water table manipulation, that's allowed. 
Rain? Hmm. Most governments allow a little rain now and again. And why the fuss over water management? Well, though you may not see it, plants are constantly seeping water into the air in a process called transpiration. Vine leaves will transpire much more than their own weight each growing season. It's something all plants do. In fact, each year, a single oak tree can transpire 40,000 gallons of water. How much water is 40,000 gallons? Well, to put it in perspective, us humans will end up drinking much less, just 14,000 gallons over the course of our lives. Though you won't find so much of it in Bordeaux, irrigation is commonplace throughout the wine world, and a nice term for it is hydraulic redistribution. In fact, as global warming is increasingly an instigator of change in European wine regions, as an industry, it seems that we are beginning to look at irrigation with less disparaging eyes. But water management isn't such a new thing. The Medoc and Oatmedoc emerged from the Dutch water removal efforts several centuries ago. Perhaps several centuries in the future, when mean temperatures are higher, we might be more interested in water addition. It's not enough to make great wine. You also have to reach the consumer that appreciates that wine. And that's where Offset is an incredible asset. Offset is an independent brand design and commerce technology company that connects with wineries on a human level to help them connect with consumers on a human level. Offset is based in wine country and staffed by creative strategists and technologists who are superb at helping create and evolve wine brands through visual identity and package design, developing the look, feel, and tone of your web content, as well as building beautiful and effective websites powered by their proprietary e-commerce platform, Offset Commerce. That's why leaders like Frog Sleep, Grace Family Vineyards, and Rain Winery already rely on Offset. Reach out to the brilliant team at Offset at offsetpartners.com. That's O-F-F-S-E-T partners with an s.com offset is focused on the wine industry and can embrace the nuanced needs of your wine brand larry stone on our show today hello sir how are you very good, Levy. How are you doing today? Nice to have you here. It's a pleasure to be here in the stormy day. A <laughs> <laughs> little bit stormy today. Yeah, what? it reminded me of home, Seattle, you know. I'm used to rain. I, I got to walk like, I don't know, six blocks in this or seven blocks, so. On a regular? Well, no, on regular, I walked a mile and a half or so to school in the rain or whatever it was. And your dad had been a, a produce buyer? Yeah, well, my, my grandmother had been a, on his mother had been a, a produce vendor in Vienna. They had a little, like, a... Uh, it was basically a booth, you know, inside an apartment building, but they sold to the neighborhood, you know, fruits and vegetables. My my grandfather was uh, had been a, in the First World War, and he was disabled in some way. Uh, they weren't sure what. It could have been traumatic. It could have just been maybe he had sleep apnea. They're not sure. They called it a sleeping disease. And uh, so he wasn't able to work. My, my, my grandmother sold vegetables to make ends meet, and... My dad was, as the oldest boy, took care of the younger brother and sister. And then uh, when he came to the United States, he trained as a plumber, actually. And when he came to the United States, he couldn't get into the union or get employment as a plumber. So he went back to the family business, which was selling produce. His grandparents, my great-grandparents, had been bakers 
in Tarnov in Poland, and so they grew up in that milieu. A lot of a lot to do with food and 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 vegetables and farming, and my mother was a grew up on a farm. And your uncle used to import crystal. Well, my my uncle, my mother's sister, married. Uh, you know, she and her, you know, their family were farm family in Romania, and they uh, they had horses and wheat, and they they actually were the town miller in in a little town in Transylvania called Bistritza. It's it's actually infamous in a way because it's the place where Harker Harker uh, in uh, in the the, uh, the story of of uh, the the vampire story you know he goes to he travels to uh, Cluj which was called Klausenberg and that's the neighboring town and they grew up near there but it, it was very beautiful farmland my mother hated the vampire stories and uh, because she thought it was such a beautiful place so ridiculous to think those kind of things happened but. Uh, anyway, she grew up there, and he was a town miller, so he they had the contract for the mill in the town. For the city owned it, and uh, so it was a big farming family. So both sides, my mother knew how to cook French sauces and Jewish dishes, and and uh, and a lot. Of, she taught me all the French sauces when I was a kid. I learned how to make Mornay and Bernays, and I made pot au chou from and learned it from her. Uh, she was the second oldest daughter in a large farm family. They had nine brothers and sisters. And then my dad, with his baking background, his mother also, you know, came to visit. <laughs> so my mother was under pressure to do Viennese stuff. So I, I grew up in a food background in a, in a country, in America at that time, where there was absolutely no desire to f do anything elevated with cooking at the time. But your uncle did import crystal. Yeah, my uncle, my, my, my mother's sister married uh, a, a gentleman who grew up in Sweden, and they had a, and because of the connection between Seattle and Sweden and Scandinavia in general, they, were, they imported Swedish crystal, and the, they kind of made a, a good living importing, being the first ones to import the Norwegian spar cheese slicers. So, again, something to do with food, and they also did uh, teakware from Thailand, but mainly they started off with Swedish crystal. You used to taste wine with him sometimes. Yeah, well, be, yeah, be, they they had decanters. I see where you're leading you. You're leading me to the decanters. So my, my because of the crystal importing business, my uh, my my aunt had uh, always had crystal decanters on the table. We'd go over on Fridays and there'd be wine on the table and and it'd be in a decanter. And I'd uh, by the time I was seven, I'd say, "Don't tell me what it is. Let me taste it. You know, let me see if I can guess what it is." And it was uh, you know easy by the time I was like. I think probably by eight or nine, I was able to get pretty pretty good at uh, guessing the variety and where it was from, whether it was old or new world. But there was a limited repertoire, you know, talking about maybe a ca one California Pinot Noir or a, ca a California Cabernet uh, or German wine. You're like, it's the Chalone again. Yeah, well, <laughs> nothing that elevated. I think we, uh, you know, we're like, we had BV. I know we had, I remember BV. That was very popular. And I, I think when I was a kid, the price for BV Rutherford, which said on the back, unforgettable, 100% made 100% from Cabernet Sauvignon grapes. You know, that was a big deal because at that time it was only required to be 50%. And uh, I think that uh, that was easy to get, you know, and Martini, we had Louis Martini. There weren't that many producers either, so. And then German and, or, or, or French producers, they were also limited to what the state store in Washington State had. Everything was a monopoly. So I, I could tell if it was a Vouvray or if it was a Riesling or if it was German or something else or French. You did some work in school for music and also history of philosophy. Well, yeah, music. I, I was. I had a diverse range of interests. I played the violin from the time I was like six or seven, and and uh, 
I want, didn't want to play it necessarily, but that's what the school, my parents and the school decided I would play. And then I, I wound up playing the flute a little later, which I had always wanted to play, but that was considered a girl's instrument when I was in elementary school. And I played, uh, I, I sang, I sang folk music, I sang classical music, and I, I even played classical guitar for a while. So I had a lot of interest in music, but it was never, I never felt I'd be professional at it, but I did, I did uh, manage the high point of my singing career, I think was uh, when I was in, uh, at a Fulbright in Germany, I sang at the Stuttgart Opera House with, uh, with the, the choir from the University of Tübingen, and we had, uh, we sang Bach cantatas at the, on the Stuttgart Opera, so that scared the heck out of me, and so I decided I wasn't going to do that again. Because, <laughs> you know, professional singers, they pretty much have to sight read, and that's what we did. We kind of had three rehearsals, and then we went to perform. That uh, was, And I didn't realize the level of uh, professionalship they, you know, expected from the students who took that class. So, But uh, I, and then later on, I, I one of my, my violin teacher in college was uh, David Harrington, who, who was the head of the Kronos Quartet. And uh, so, and his his uh, wife was my my like home my homeroom uh, desk mate. I mean, we shared a desk, so uh, you know I, it was a nice co- connection to have. And I became a board member of the Kronos Quartet later on. You keep up with it? Uh, I keep up with I, I I listen to them, but I haven't been. I I I left the board probably five years or seven years ago now from the for the Kronos Quartet due to other duties I had. But you know it was interesting because it was kind of a nice connection to have, and I I did uh, I was there when the when the Kronos Quartet was born, basically before it moved to San Francisco. It was born in Seattle, and then Francis Ford Coppola, whom I worked with, also employed them. You know over the years, even without before I even worked, you know before I worked for him, uh, you know full time, he had used them in some of his films. So it was a nice connection to have. So you took up a job waiting tables while you were in school. Yeah, I was, uh, well, I started being a dishwasher. I started uh, uh, in my first year. I, I didn't want to take any money from anyone. Uh, you know, I, 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 didn't, I couldn't afford loans, I didn't think. I, I was deathly afraid of loans, and school wasn't that expensive, so I worked a job, and uh, I, do, I was a dishwasher. I think I made like $1.50 an hour, working up to $1.80, I think, finally. It was pretty rough work. No dishwashing machine. It was three sinks. I wound up getting fungus on my hands because I was in water, you know, soaked in hot water for so long a day. So I quit that job after a while. But it was a good experience. And it's on the basis of that that I actually got a job as a sommelier years later. And how did that come about? Well, I was uh, I had I was finishing my doctoral ex- <laughs> dissertation. Uh, it's an unusual route, I, but I, I was uh, I had had a Fulbright scholarship and I studied in Germany uh, in, in Tübingen for a year and. Uh, and then I and I had started my dissertation research, so I came back and was writing that. And I was teaching full time. I was I wound up being an acting instructor at the University of Washington and working three classes, and and then having office hours. And I I was working like I think just teaching and preparing and giving the classes. And then the office hours was probably about eighty hours a week. It seemed it was a huge time, and I wasn't getting anywhere on my dissertation. So, of uh, a good friend of mine who was. Uh, working as a bartender, he was studying medieval German troubadour poetry, so he could not get a TA ship because no one really wanted, there weren't enough students to take medieval, you know, German. So he, It's not uh, as sexy as vampires, that's the problem. Well, it's not as sexy know. as vampires or even modern German, which at that time, since there were language requirements from every discipline, there were lots of language teachers at the university who were basically graduate students in the humanities. 
and that that's sort of disappeared. But you know, he had no hope or prayer because you know, Mittelhochdeutsch. Uh, even though Walter von der Vogelweide is a really compelling poet, you know, people will read it in translation rather than the original. But um, anyway, so he he was working as a bartender, and he said, "Well, there's a job as a sommelier at this restaurant." I think at that time in Seattle, there were only two jobs for sommeliers in the in the city. And one was at Ray's Boathouse, and I tried a few years earlier to get that, and I somehow I didn't hit it off with the owners. There was a misunderstanding in the interview, and they decided to disqualify me from consideration. Uh, years later, they apologized. They said, we made a mistake. But, but at that point, I didn't get that job, and so he said, there's this job. And I said, oh, yeah, there's no way I'll get that job. And he said, well, just apply for it. I said, well, okay, you know. And, and I thought it'd be fun just to apply. I thought there was no hope, but I would prove him wrong. And uh, I got one interview, and then the, the, the person who was to be my boss, the full-time sommelier, needed an assistant, so I, I interviewed with him. Then I came back and interviewed with him and the owner again, and then the owner wanted me back for another interview. And I realized something was up, so he said, finally, um, you, know, I, you know, you've left out quite a bit of time on your resume, and uh, you, know, you can come clean if you've committed a crime. You know, yeah. I'm going to have you investigated. Rikers. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, he's, and I said, well, when I tell you what I've been doing in that 10 years, you'll probably prefer that I'd been a felon that's right. coming clean now because he had, he had been... A, have you he, heard of the troubadour? <laughs> yeah. No, yeah, he, uh, he did not like students. Uh, uh, he hated people. He had been in Vietnam, and he hated students, who, especially students who had had deferments like I did. So he said, well, you know, you know so much about wine, because he'd grilled me. He'd been a sommelier himself. He had an encyclopedia, Lexus Lachine's encyclopedia of wine open, and the last question was on Gumpoldskirchen in, in Austria. And I said, well, it's in the Termin region, and it's famous for Rotkipfler and Zirpfandler and... He he just slammed the book shut and said, "I don't know where you came from, but you know you know so much." And then he said, "You know what did he what he'd been doing?" So I said, "Finally," he said, "I'd hire you. You know you know so much. I'd hire you because you just seem to know everything about wine. Uh, but you know you haven't worked in a restaurant, so I'm not going to hire you." That's where my dishwashing experience came in because I had left that off. I thought no sommelier would you know nobody's going to hire a sommelier based on their experience as a dishwasher in a restaurant. But Did the, you show them your hands? You're like, do you no, see this fungus? They, they've healed. I do have a few scars, but it's, made, it's, made, it's healed. It's healed. Look at these like, hands. You don't think I've had experience in I, a restaurant? He, uh, he actually, that was it. Basically, he knew that if I'd been washing dishes for over a year in a, in a restaurant like that in three sinks and do, cleaning the, re, washing the floors and doing everything, he said, you're hired. He said, you, he, dishwashers know the bottom of the restaurant business and they'll do anything to make it happen. And so you're hired. So that, that erased his prejudice against, you know, ivory tower types, which he really hated. So, uh, you know, dishwashing came in, you know, unexpectedly, you know, handy for, for my career. And what was that person's name? That was uh, Uppinghouse. Mr. Uppinghouse ran a restaurant called The Red Cabbage. And then he, he, he worked actually for Tom Douglas in Seattle, became famous. He worked at Duke's Royal, and I think he's been with Tom Douglas for a while as a manager. And so you were working there as a sommelier, which is kind of unusual for the States. What year was that? Well, I, I started working as a sommelier full-time, and like, that was 81, 81. So 81 to 84, basically, uh, I, was, uh, I was working at that place. And then in 84, I was hired by Four Seasons. I was working at the Red Cabbage for those three years. What was the Red Cabbage like? Exciting. It was, uh, you know, it was great because it was wine for the masses, um, Wine prices were low. No one cared about wine in the early 80s. And uh, 
So I could, you know, every day, you know, we drink something nice. Like we poured Dujac by the glass. We we were also I we were talking and the second year I was there, we we were talking about how to pour different wines by the glass. And he decided he'd buy a Cruvenet machine, which was brand new at that time. And we went to Monterey and looked at the a model they had there at the Monterey Wine Festival. And we bought it. And our first wines were Domaine Dujac Claude La Roche, Chateau Ikem, nineteen seventy five. Uh, there was, uh, I mean, I can't remember, it was, but those two stuck out. It's really amazing. We sold, we sold a lot of it. We had, we had all sorts of great wines. We had even, I think the first set of wines we had, we even had a Chateau Lafitte. It was like a 1970 Lafitte by the, we poured by the ounce or by the glass. So you could, but it wasn't that expensive. Even if you bought a full bottle of Ekem from us, you know, it would have been like uh, $180 for a full bottle of Ekem, not a half. Uh, and, uh, you know, like something like 1962 or 64. Because that's, I mean, we had we had on the wine list. We didn't even put that on the Cruvenet machine. We had Petru seventy one for fifty seven dollars a bottle on the on the wine list. I think it's still similarly priced. That's yeah, sure. fifty seven thousand a case or whatever. I don't know. Five, <laughs> There's five, still five fives and sevens. Five, fives and sevens that, somewhere. You know. But no, I mean it's it's crazy because no one really cared. And and actually the Bordeaux market had collapsed at the in the seventies. So there was all this wine that was floating around that people weren't buying. And uh, you know, wine, wine uh, appreciation kind of went in cycles. So in the '60s it was rising, but then it kind of peaked and collapsed in the early '70s, '73, '74, '75. '75 came out. There's a little bit of a revival, but it was, still was not strong. And uh, it wasn't really until '82 that things really took off. So you, before then, you know, I was buying Petrus. I think the last price before '82 was like sixty dollars. I think I paid sixty dollars a bottle for '79, and then after '82 it went up to like a hundred and fifty. And you think that's because of Parker? Uh, it's also the economy. It's also it's it's not just Parker. Parker was very good. It was very important, I think, in the de- development of wine interest because there was this. The media attached themselves to his story, which was here's a lawyer, and you know it was it was a lot about the story. It was not like he was some genius about wine. It's like here's this lawyer who likes wine. He's sending out a newsletter, and he says this is going to be the greatest vintage ever. And here's Robert Finnegan, who's the official you know dean of American wine writers, and Frank Pryle saying that this is eighty twos are like anomalies and not, and more like California wines and not really that interesting. They're not classic. So there's this fight between this young upstart and then the established writers and uh, I think that was a dramatic story head to head story and that that propelled him into the spotlight but I think also his style of writing and his taste were more in tune with what uh, with what people liked anyway than than the British oriented wine writer that we saw before that and when did you decide you know what I think I'm going to stay with this sommelier thing rather than finish that dissertation well you know uh, I, I, already by that time, it was the early 80s, you know, um, there, there was a, a bit of anti-intellectualism. The, the student body was getting far more conservative than it was in the early 70s or throughout the 70s. So the change and, into the Reagan years. Yeah, the change into the Reagan years. The students were not interested in learning. When I was a student, pretty much most students were interested in learning. They didn't care about the degree. It was like free love, free, you know, thought, you know, let's, let's uh, be anarchists, let's be whatever. Uh, if I fight the anti-establishmentarian was big, of course, because they were fighting the war in Vietnam. But, but in addition, there was that fostered kind of like a, a idea of thought being important, philosophy being important, art being important. And uh, so by the 80s, it tamed down a lot and, and Reagan came to, you know, into office. And there was a lot of 
of uh, withdrawal of funding for humanities and for those, you know, uppity, you know, things that were more radical or liberal thinkers might congregate, they were withdrawn. So it was more about funding through uh, science, pro- you know, science that was related to the war and, you know, in industry or related to just, you know, a pharmaceutical industry or whatever. Some had some tie-in with, uh, with a business that would help fund those lines of research. And uh, and also the one really devastating blow is that they did away in the name of like making you know uh, education more relevant. I think that was the key word at the time. Relevant. Uh, they said, well, who needs to know foreign languages? You know, you don't need foreign languages. So that really was the big decisive thing that cut out most of the the funding for the departments I was involved with, in, which I which were human romance and German and film studies and all sorts of things, but. But basically, it would have been funded either by the German department or or an English department, most likely a German department. And uh, you know, they were they people were not getting tenure anymore. You could see it happening. I'd been actually on a on a program that uh, that was being funded by the government to develop a, a humanities program that would be useful for science majors because science majors hated take, taking any humanities class. And this was to show them the importance of the history of, philo- history of philosophy, the philosophy of science, you know, cultural things that had to do with art, music, and, and how science worked into that. And, and so that would, you know, try to locate the entire cultural, you know, endeavor of civilization and how science plays into that so it would be relevant to them. But um, we the whole thing, it was a great program, and it all broke down because the professors of Southeast Asian lit- language and, and literature and the professors of Asian language and literature could not agree on how many units each one would get because, because that meant funding. And they also disliked each other enormously because they liked being, they disliked being lumped in one unit with Indian and Chinese together. You know, it was like... That's what I remember from my academic years was infighting between yeah. the professors that the didn't stake, like each other. They don't. They, they also were jealous of each other. And you know, when the stakes are so low, that's when the fighting really gets the yeah. meanest. And that was there. We they blocked us. We we figured out the program, really beautiful program, in about six months. And then we spent the next year and a half before the the uh, the funding lapsed for developing this pr- program. Uh, we we spent the next year and a half just arguing over how many units South Asia got versus East Asia. I saw those guys just fighting over each other and trying to get each other. You know, trying to block each other and yeah. wearing l- lousy suits and, you know, stuff like that. And I was yeah. like, man, this life's not for me. I, yeah. You know, that's when I decided I wasn't going to be a professor. What were you, what was your course of study? Well, I was a humanities guy. I didn't get as far as you did, but, I, you know, I was in English and art history. Oh, wow. Yeah. Double. And then uh-huh. just, you know, and also philosophy minor. And so then the philosophy guys dressed okay, mm-hmm. but the, you know, the English guys not so well. And I was like, wow, I, I just can't imagine myself wearing that. Uh-huh. That's like the not, uniform. <laughs> that's not me. And, yeah. uh, and then also there was really significant infighting. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, yeah. guys would get pushed out of one department and have to go to another and they just didn't seem nice. They didn't seem happy. You know? No, they, 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 there were a lot of petty bickering and jealousies in the, you know, in the academia. And that, that was, I think, one the thing that really turned me off was that more, more than anything else was that they're like dinosaurs and the extinction is coming and they don't see it. They're willing to fight over these few units when they have something that could actually save the whole, the, the entire, not just the department, but the entire field of humanities, you know, for the universities. Because you could latch it onto the science funding. Yeah, because yeah. you're going to get all these science majors that will be willing to take all these units. 
And now they only have to take like one or two, and here's a whole thing that makes it relevant and it's interesting. And you know, otherwise they're going to just do away with humanities requirements, which is what happened. And and they did away with languages already. They were you know it's already on the way out. When I started, when I applied for college, I think you had to know three languages to get a major in, in in English. You know, just to be a humanities major, you had to have three languages: one classic and two modern. And by the time I graduated, you didn't have to know any, except English. And uh, that's that's sad. So that so those things. I saw the writing on the wall and where it was going. Um, and I, and then I would have still wanted to be a professor. I I loved what I was doing. I loved writing about uh, German and French, you know, poetry of the 20th century and late 19th centuries, and about my my dissertation was actually on a philosophical topic rather than on poetry itself. But that was I had studied that for years and knew it inside and out, and was very fascinated by it. Uh, but. Uh, you know, but I saw that 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 was not really a lifelong. It was not feasible to do that life for my entire life, and and then I started selling wine in a restaurant, and 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 instead of having, I taught you know ten years. I was teaching freshman English or German, you know, one hundred and one, and you know, and basic Spanish. Even I taught a number of languages, and and every time you taught something, like especially English, was so disheartening because people didn't listen. They you'd have to like find creative ways to get them to listen and do their work because they really were uninterested at all in these things that you loved, like Faulkner or whatever, Richard Wright or whatever, the author. You thought, these are fascinating writers. These are so stimulating. And then you teach 30 people who are like basically falling asleep because it was so boring to them. So I figured out that, that, didn't, that was the greatest lesson I learned teaching you know, at the university was how to engage students who basically have no fundamental interest in what you're teaching. You know, how do you get them involved? And so think of strategies for that. That, that, that helped me when I was training hotel staff, 200, you know, opening a hotel and training 250 waiters who were room service waiters or banquet waiters who didn't really know, care about wine, but I could get them to ta- blind taste. You know, I, I taught, so I taught blind masses. tasting became the tool. Blind tasting and competition. I, you know, people love competition, and you have stragglers. So I would get the people who were the most bored, and you know, maybe had five jobs. Who knows what their personal situation was? But they were room service waiters at night, and during the day, who knows? They may have been postmen or whatever, and they were falling asleep. And I'd say, okay, you, what's answer this question? Not the guy who always wanted to raise her, you know, his or her hand. Not that person, but the guy who was falling asleep. So. You know, you're in this group now. You're a team. So, what's the answer to the question? And then he he'd go like, uh, and then he'd turn around and they, I said, you're entitled a lifeline. You know, so then they'd all co- you know talk, and then then I'd make him a team into blind tasting after the lectures were over, and and uh, so they'd all they'd all be interested because there were prizes. There actually were prizes, and no one likes to lose. So people were more if they knew they're going to be called on, and they knew there was a prize, and they and they knew they'd let their teammates down. You know, then they were more motivated. Peer pressure is a lot better than some teachers saying, I want you to listen to me now. And uh, anyway, so I, I learned all these things while teaching. But uh, I love that. I love teaching when it was good, but but having to force people to study, you know, great pieces of art and literature, I, I just found that disheartening and demoralizing. So when I was teaching, when I was, when I was selling wine in a restaurant, I, people would keep asking questions. They wanted more. I'd have to say, no, I have to stop telling you about this because I have to do something else. I have to go to another table. Sorry, I'll come back. You know, But they wanted more. They were hungered for more and more information. And that was so refreshing that I think that was the most stimulating thing about it, in addition to being able to taste any wine I ever dreamt about or read about. So it was a, a great... Uh, it was easy to... Tra- I, I just I never really made a transition. I just wound up never leaving the sommelier profession uh, because I, I never finished the dissertation, and I realized, well, 
I'll do this. This is pretty good. I think I'll do this for a while, you know, and when it, when I lose interest, I'll go back and finish my dissertation. How did the opportunity with the Four Seasons come about? Well, I'd already, you know, at, at the Red Cabbage, we had a great wine program. The owner had been a sommelier, and so he invested a lot of money in wine. He invested a lot of money in glassware. We had, in 1981, you know, he had gla- he had like six different wine glasses for the restaurant, a complete set, so that you could have a Riesling glass. He even had a Mosul, and a, it was, that was kind of a little overkill. He had a Mosul glass and a Rheingau glass, because in the Mosul, they have green stems, and the Rheingau, the same glass, but with a brown stem. So we had one for each. Riesling was a lot more popular in the 80s. And uh, and then we had a white glass for white burgundy or Chardonnay. We had a glass for Pinot Noir, a glass for Cabernet. This was, we had dessert wine glasses. We had we had glasses for a lot of different things. It was a fantastic setting because he, he spent money on that and he spent money on wine. You know, he the problem he had was he, he didn't know how to spend money on maintaining the restaurant. <laughs> so I was there for four or five years and then we had won, uh, you know, um, you know, the Wine Spectator, one of the first to win a Wine Spectator award, and and uh, the local Four Seasons Hotel was looking to get some recognition for their dining. They had they had a very beautiful dining room, and they'd been around only four years or three years. They re- had remodeled. They were it was the old Weston had used, had owned the the Seattle the Olympic Hotel in Seattle, and then. Or they leased it. The University of Washington actually owns the property in the hotel. But so they had the lease and they had the contract to manage it for many decades. And then they let it lapse, or or they lost it. And Four Seasons did that in '80s. So they'd only been around three or four years when they recruited me. They came. They said, "We, you know, we really want to up the wine program. We heard you're the smartest guy in town, and we want to, you know, we'll pay you, you know, X dollars, and you'll get a, you know, a 401k and you know whatever health insurance things that I didn't necessarily have at the other job and I, w- I wanted to stay, but you know, the problem was he, he spent all the money on wine, and then he started spending money on computers, but the carpet needed redoing, and you know, et cetera, et cetera. And so uh, I, it, was, it was kind of falling apart, so it was time to move on. And I uh, wound up working for Four Seasons for about five years, and they sent me to Chicago. What did you take from the Four Seasons experience besides the trip from Seattle to Chicago? Well, Four Seasons, it was, it was, I never intended to work for a company, a big company, you know, so it was, it was something I didn't really want to do necessarily. It was something I did because the offer was so good. And I thought, well, you know, with all this benefits, it may be worthwhile. And I, I, what I loved about Four Seasons was that I had the support of the, the GM there and all the people locally. I loved, you know, Charlie Ferraro was my GM. I got to meet Stan Bromley. I got to meet a lot of good people that were working, chefs that were working in various restaurants. Doug McNeil, who was a, was a chef in, uh, in uh, Washington, D.C. He was a great lover of wine and a friend for uh, Robert Haas. You know, so he, you know, he had great connections. Um, so there's a nice thing about being belonging to that kind of organization, but unfortunately, the F&B director, the corporate F&B director, didn't have the same vision that a lot of his employees did, and he was a big impediment, you know, to developing the program. And so I, you know, ultimately, that's why I left. It was there was a lot of you know political, you know, maneuvering going on in the company, you know, which is normal in a big company. And I I could live with I lived with that. There was n- nothing out of the norm or really bizarre. So. But it was not the thing I really loved, you know, to be involved with corporate politics. It reminded me of the bickering at the at the universities. You know, I just don't, I'm not into bickering. I like to do my thing and 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 make it work. And if it doesn't, then I then I take blame myself. But 
but you know to have people like you know maneuver for their career you know into groups I, that's just not me but you know you could see that and uh there but there's still there were so many great people at four seasons and i still am in touch sometimes i see them and uh, uh i met guy rigby who's the current fnb director corporate fnb president of of food and beverage for uh for four seasons i saw him like two weeks ago and i I'd, I'd heard a lot about him and we had a nice chat he's he seems very decent and uh, James Tidwell, who's a master sommelier in Texas, is doing a lot with them corporately, which is what they wanted me to do originally. They were I helped to create the corporate uh, wine program for them, but I, I, I wasn't satisfied with the way it was going. Then uh, another reason why I left because I, I just thought it wasn't being, uh, you know, applied properly. I think now I think under Guy, uh, you know, it's and John Washko before him was going to take over, and he he would have been great too. But he gave up before he do, he too moved on. He's in Napa now, running, uh, running the uh, Auberge de Soleil and and Calistoga Inn properties, Solage. How did you meet Charlie Trotter? Well, when I was uh, I was transferred to Chicago because it was close to the corporate headquarters where I was supposed to develop the corporate wine program and and also you know consult with them. I went up to Canada a few times and it was only like an hour and a half away. Uh, and it was central. The four seasons, yeah, four seasons still. So they moved me. I opened the. I moved to Chicago to work at the Ritz Carlton, which they owned. They continued to own it, uh, the Ritz Carlton in Chicago, only because it had been sold to them. It was one of the first hotels they bought, and they kept the name to prevent Ritz Carlton from coming in competing against them. If and then they later, and when they built the Four Seasons Hotel a few years later, I was to come and be in charge of the wine program for both. And. Uh, so they moved me to Chicago, and I didn't know what to expect. It was kind of traumatic. I'd grown up in Seattle. I'd lived in Europe. I, I'd lived in Vienna. I lived in, you know, in Tübingen. I lived in Madrid, Barcelona, and you know, and I loved Europe. But I, in America, I was really wedded to the you know, West Coast, Seattle. I loved, you know, everything from Vancouver down to even LA. I grew to like LA better and better over the years. I, I was not really fond of LA at the, in my first childhood memories of it, but. Uh, it was, you know, it was Chicago, New York. I, I had offers to move to New York. In fact, uh, uh, Ivana Trump offered me a job at the Plaza, and I, I recommend. I, I realized I didn't. I, I don't know. If, I, I didn't think it was a good fit, so I recommended John Poston, who moved from Portland then to take the job. So he came out here. That's already a couple of decades ago, maybe. Anyway, so, um, so I was, you know, I had opportunities, but my wife, you know, just resisted she had grown up in montana and in smaller towns than i did in minnesota montana so new york's terrified her so i even though i had some opportunities to move here it was impossible it was impossible but she had family in chicago her mother grew up in oak park uh, outside of chicago and she had an uncle there and some cousins so well that was that was okay so we moved there and uh when when i i wanted to come back though i had worked for four seasons i was going to leave uh, uh, finally, you know, even the Chicago job that they had, that I had moved there for. And, uh, Charlie's wife and I had started a thing called the Chicago Sommelier Association. And we held the meetings at Charlie Trotter's restaurant and, uh, Charlie approached me. Well, she approached me first. She said, I, could, would you like to come and work for us? She, she heard I was leaving and she said, I, I don't know if you want to really have to go back to Seattle or if you wouldn't mind helping us out. We need some help here. We would like you to help overhaul the service and maybe do, we want to expand the wine program. And you know so much about French wine and, and Italian wine. In addition to American wine, it would be helpful. So, and How long had Charlie Charter's been open as a restaurant at that time? About a year and three quarters, almost two years. And, uh, and so I... Um, 
you know, I, and it, it hadn't, it wasn't famous nationally or anything. It was, it was well loved locally. A lot of wine societies did dinners there. He, he and his first wife had a really good uh, working relationship with the community and, uh, he was out there, you know, for some of the traditional wine clubs and for, you know, the the Chendrotisseur uh, who did a few dinners there. They, but they loved him. They loved his, in, you know, inventiveness and creativity and the spontaneousness of it. And they knew they'd always be shocked maybe, but they would, but in the end they would still like it for the most part. You know, not everything, but some things that made them boiling mad, I guess. Because when I came on board, I got the lecture from from Tubby Bacon, who was a a great uh, great friend of the restaurant. But he said, you know, the Shen is kind of conservative, and he likes to throw out things like you know coxcombs and you know duck feet and things like that. You know, just and, and they work, but a lot of people just don't want to eat those. <laughs> So uh, I said, well, you know, we'll make it, you know, we maybe won't tell people everything that's in it from now on, but, you know, we'll do things interestingly and they'll all work. And, and, and he also worked with me to make the food, you know, more compatible with wine. He was, he was very fascinated by that, but he just, he didn't have the right person to work with until then to, to figure that out. Do you think shock was a little bit part of his technique? I yeah. mean, now we think of him as kind of like older school. But well, do you think at the time that it was, you know what I mean? Like old school it? and Charlie, that doesn't, Char, Charlie died a provocateur. Charlie was a provocateur from A to Z. He, from his youth, before he was a chef, he did things to scare his family. I mean, he did stuff that was just outrageous and he was, he was good at it. He was intelligent and funny and, uh, and good at it. But, but, uh, but, you know, he, he also admired, he had, he had role models that he admired, but. But uh, it'd be hard to guess from what he was doing at that time that those were his real role models, like Freddie Girardet. But what he admired about Freddie was being there every day and doing something new every day, depending on what's fresh and and thinking, you know, about food a lot rather than just doing something they inherited. And and so he didn't want to do anything that was inherited. You know, even in his role models, they were pretty much iconoclasts or cutting edge. Like, you know, Joel Robuchon was the other kind of, they were the twins, Joel Robuchon and Girardet, and then uh, Marco Pierre White, who who was uh, also a, kind of a role model again, kind of an iconoclast. So he he uh, you know he he was not not stayed or old school. You know it's funny that people might think he was old school just because he was he had his restaurant for you know twenty five years. But but he always changed. That restaurant was always changing, and he never really. It was like jazz. He viewed, and that's on his show. If you look at the tapes of his show, he said you know cooking is like jazz. And that's why it was called the Kitchen Sessions. That's the series, because they were sessions. This is what he did then. And if you came back after the show was over and you asked for the dishes that he had on the show, you'd go like, ah, we we did that, you know. Did you bond on the educational aspect with Charlie? Yeah, I think he we we both had searching intellects, and we were both not afraid of work, and we were both not afraid of getting angry or you know being ten, you know intense. You know, I think his intensity uh, is what really scared a lot of people. He was like, you know, flaming red hot all the time. He was never, he never cooled down. I mean, he's never had a day off. That, that, in the end, I just, he, he, I got burned out with that. That I couldn't take, you know, he'd work, you know, seven days a week for months on end, basically. You wouldn't have, be at the restaurant, but on your days off, you might have an event in another city. So you'd be traveling and then you get back and you go right into the kitchen or into the dining room and work that night. And it's exciting and fun and I enjoyed it. But, um, but you know, there, after a while, you know, you have to go like, well, you know, I have a family. I, I didn't, you know, I really didn't see my daughter for the first three years of her life, almost four years, first, almost first four years she was four when we moved. I really didn't see her. I'd come home and I'd be home for a couple hours you know, in the middle of the night 
trying to calm down after the after work, or maybe I'd pass out. But even if she, if she cried, I didn't hear it because I was so dead. I had no little sleep and was working hard all day, physically as well as mentally. And then in the morning, she'd be gone, or she'd you know, be out for a stroll, and I'd wake up and go to work. <laughs> so you know, he could, he did that for thirty years. He did that even before he opened the restaurant, and and I I respect that. I admire that. I I I'm not. I wasn't strong enough to do that. So it was in the townhouse, and mm-hmm. what was the service like at that time? Well, Charlie, uh, you know, it was it was evolving. It was it was he always wanted to have a restaurant. You know, from the beginning, he'd have pre-service meetings. It was very unique. We I've never seen anything like it. He'd have a pre-service meeting that was like forty minutes long or a half hour long, depending on how many dishes there were. He'd grill all the waiters. What's in the dish? You know, do you know what's in the dish? And the dish would change every day. So he'd tell them, and then like. 15 minutes later, he'd say, okay, what's in the dish? Do you remember? Did you take notes? Can you tell me? I want you to have it memorized, though. If you were listening, you should have remembered. It's not that hard. But he'd have a list of, like, 20 ingredients and how he made it. And, and, uh, but, yeah, so a lot of, he burned out a lot of waiters, too, because they, he expected a lot from them. He expected great service. He, he, he started off with a more casual kind of service, and then he he evolved to wanting to have service like at Freddy Girardet or something where it happens and it's all magic and it's all perfect. Like in he he for a while he was using like in the Swiss Army and then it became the German Army and then and then it was like you know it was more he wanted regimented and then he then after a while he decided that wasn't what he wanted anymore either. So you know but it always evolved. It was to be he wanted you to do stuff that no one would notice. Like if he saw dirt on the floor like lint, he would uh, he came up with the idea of putting double stick scotch tape to the soles of feet so you'd walk across and pick up the lint so that no one would see you stooping down to pick stuff off the floor or they could get the idea that you were dirtying your hands you know uh he he thought a lot of things through that no one else had so it was uh, and it was it was pretty intense because we kept perfecting it every as we went along and and uh, a lot of same thing for the food every when i started every day was a completely different menu and some days the the chefs and the cooks would come to the restaurant and they would have no idea what they were going to prepare that day because Charlie was out with the sous chef at the market and they were trying to see what was good that day. And if it was a really bad day, it would take a long time because they were trying to figure out what they could do. And if it was a really good day, they'd have a hard time trying to figure out what, how to limit themselves. And, and they didn't want anything left over from day to day. And he did have a little bit of a walk-in at first and on the first remodel, he got rid of it. So no walk-in, really. No walk-in. Just, Every day it had to be, there was a walk-in, and then he realized people were holding vegetables for two days that they'd maybe get too much, and it wasn't as good the second day. So no walk-in. It got done. It got eliminated. <laughs> it was, it was, it's very demanding when you work on those circumstances. He also modified over the years, you know, dishes would, instead of being totally different every day and you wouldn't even know what the menu was from one day to the next he would he would have a better idea there would be modifications that were gradual continual and constant but gradual so that you wouldn't eliminate a dish one day without even knowing that it's going to happen until you got to work he would tell you okay we're going to do something different maybe they didn't know exactly but he'd say i think you can prepare this setup for it you know what was the reception like in the dining room well, uh, in the early days, it was tough. There was very, that's one thing I changed. That was a big change I made was the reception of the guests in the dining room because we had no reception area. We had a small bar, and it, and it can be 20 below zero in Chicago and frequently is in winter. And if you can only hold like 10 people 15, at 15 and only 
five or four of those can sit at the bar and there are no tables or anything, it's hard. So, uh, you know, we had situations where it was, when I first came, the restaurant was overbooked. Not deliberately, but they thought, you know, it's a three-hour turn or something or two-and-a-half-hour turn, and then they'd turn the table. And so they, they had everyone, they had people coming in early, and then, but then, and they were, they, the restaurant was created with that kind of a timetable, figuring that there's only three courses possible at the restaurant, appetizer, main course, and dessert. But then Charlie started sending out extra courses. So uh, by the time I was there, he could send out two or three extra courses, and they'd be small, but they would take time. And so a three-hour turnaround even, we, we had two and a half on the books. I think three hour was impossible still. I, I started timing the turner, you know, the turnover. And I said, you know, you, you have to seat less people, have to book less people. And he said, well, then we'll lose money. I said, well, then you have to serve less food. And then he said, well, that's not what I want to do. So we had this discussion that went on for a couple of months. And then finally, uh, I, I actually resigned. The, after three months into it, I said, you can't, we had a particularly bad weekend night. And we had people waiting in 20 below zero weather, trying to get in the door. And it was already full because no one was being seated on the second turn because everybody was hanging around. It was a Friday night and they didn't want to go. And um, and it was booked too tight to begin with. So people were still getting desserts. And I said, look, you have to do less. You have to build. Enough. I said, you can do the same number of covers, but you have to build 30% more space and leave it vacant or grad- rotate it so that you can seat people when they come. And and there was a meeting with Charlie's father and him and Charlie because uh, Charlie's it, dad was kind of the bankroll of the operation. Well, he, he wasn't just a bankroll. He was. I mean, he helped. He helped out financially, but he also was very important in terms of mentoring Charlie and how to be a businessman. You know how how do you make a business work? And not not in a way of how do you make money, but in a way of you want you have a certain goal with your business and you have a certain talent. How do you make that work? How do you make your talent work and not go bankrupt, basically? And and so, you know, he and Charlie looked at each other after I mentioned, uh, uh, you know, needing more space. And they said, oh, well, we are, we actually have blueprints for extra 30 extra seats. I said, well, where are you going to put it? Oh, above the kitchen. There's an area in the back that we were going to build out, but we thought we didn't need it. And I go like, well, you need it. So that's what we did in the, the within like six months after I was there. They started building the upstairs in the back so they could seat you know, bigger groups and, and rotate people in and out, and also the salon area. So there's a lot of extra space. Then later on, after I left, they bought the the, the place next door. When did the kitchen table come into effect? Before I got there. They had a the local critic. The story is that uh, Bill Rice, who wrote for the Chicago Tribune and did restaurant reviews and was is a great, great critic, actually. Uh, in addition, he had national prominence at that time, and um, he... Uh, he wanted to come in for some dinner they were doing with chefs. You know, he, Charlie was great at inviting other guest chefs to come in and do a dinner, do a course or two, or share the spotlight with him. And uh, he, Bill Rice called and said, I, I want a, a seat. I, need, I want to come in. I'm bringing this other guy. We want to come in. And uh, I can't remember who it was he was going to bring, but somebody who Charlie admired. Uh, and... Um, <laughs> Charlie said, "Well, we're all booked. I mean, when he met, and when he met, we were all booked. They were really all booked, and and so uh, he talked to his wife Lisa and said, "What do we do?" And she said, well, "How about putting a table in the kitchen? You know, let's we can put a table right there in the kitchen, and it'll be a real kitchen table, not like some restaurants have where you can see into the kitchen, but it was a table in the middle of the kitchen, and the kitchen was pretty tight at that time. It wasn't built out as much as it was, you know, a couple on the first build out two years later, so." 
there Bill Rice was in the middle of the kitchen with plates going by him and around him and over his head and and people trying to squeeze behind him to get around to the espresso machine or to the, we had a little wine cooler in the middle of the kitchen to to chill whites and uh and that was and from then it was such a big hit he wrote about it how much fun it was and so and then people started asking for it so we just made it a regular part of the dining experience and it could only seat four people, really. It would have been better if only two were there, but it really could only seat four max. And then they built out the kitchen and uh, they made it, uh, they made space, literally made space for a kitchen table where they could seat six people, up to six. What did you do with the wine list? Well, Lisa had developed the first wine list and it was about 120 different wines, from almost all from California. They they were big fans of, like, at that, you know, Randall Graham. They had a lot of the Rhone Rangers. They had uh, Pats and, you know, Pats and Hall. They had, uh, uh, you know, a lot of things. Oboe and Climat, Jim Clendenin was one of the first people there, you know, and as well as uh, Bonnie Doon. They'd come really, really early and been doing wine dinners there and collaborated. So they, but they didn't really have, you know, a great deal of Burgundy or Italian or 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 Bordeaux at all and so when I came we we kind of expanded the wine program we did more many more wine pairings uh and we we had you know a depth so we we had instead of just like and still wine at that time was not super expensive not like today it was still you know reasonable and so we had uh, DRC and we had you know Gaia I mean Gaia was you know, really cheap, uh, you know, by today's standards, you know, we, it was expensive by standards of those days. It was never inexpensive by compared to other wines from, from the Piedmont, but it was like, I think $35 a bottle or $50 a bottle, you know, when I'm in that. Range. I feel like there was always a lot of Gaia on that list for, yeah. for as long as I ever looked at it. Well, Angelo fell in love with, with Charlie's food. I mean, I, I knew Angelo already from Seattle long, long ago when he first started, he had a very good relationship with, uh, with uh, Patrick O'Connell, who was the ran a company called Zephyr Imports in Seattle, and and uh, Gaia liked him so much that he spent a summer with his whole family, including Gaia, guy who was like a little girl at the time, I don't know, five six years old maybe, and and to learn English so that he could come to you know, and he always had trouble. His pronunciation was so strong that I think even people at the end, even though he practiced English for years, still had trouble understanding him. But I, I never had trouble understanding him, and he spent a whole summer there tr- studying English and how to speak English, and uh, and then uh, so when he came to Chicago, I said, "Oh, I'm here, you know, come and visit." You know, I heard you're coming. You know, maybe we can go out or something. And and so I went to his tasting, and then after I said, "Well, you have some time. You're you're not doing anything. Why don't you come for dinner tonight?" And he goes, "No, no, no. I, you know, when I travel, he was always concerned about his weight and not eating too much because, you know, it was a, it's a very easy to get overweight and out of shape if you're traveling and doing wine dinners." So he said, "I, I just want fish, poached, nothing, nothing fried or anything." I said, "Charlie will do something." And so I told Char- Charlie, "Charlie wanted to do all sorts of stuff." I said, "No, Charlie." The way you'll win him is just do a poached fish in a broth, like we have some dish. I said, "Do something like that, real light, just one or two courses, and light." Vegetable and fish, no meat, no nothing. Really, I, I got to do this. I got to do that. No, please. He wants. He won't. He'll leave if you do it. He'll be upset. He'll love you and he will come back every time he's to Chicago if this is what you do. So he listened to me. He, it was not his impulse <laughs> at that time. I think any visiting guest, you know, he would bury them in twenty courses if he could, you know, because it was a sign of how much he respected them or admired them. Anyway, but uh, he restrained himself. He refrained from doing that, and he. 
and Gaia came back every time he, they became really good friends and he, Charlie visited him. And then many years later, uh, it was Charlie was born in 1959, and Gaia was founded in 1859. So I told Angelo at some event we were in California together at, I said, you know, next year is Charlie's big birthday. He's going to be uh, 50, and it's your 150th anniversary, and I'm sure you're doing something. Why don't we figure out a way to do something together? So he, Angelo came up with this idea. He flew us all to Tuscany and had this big, we had all the most important uh, food critics in Italy come to this thing and producers of cheese and salami and everything. You know, all the great artisan producers he knew in food were invited as well as friends of his from the, from the region. And he had this great three or four days of seminars and he took us out to all these great restaurants in the region uh, it was it was and he he showed the exhibit he had this great exhibit about his 150th anniversary and it was it was fantastic it was really a fantastic weekend how many lists were really international at that time in america well many li- well you know there were there were very few great wine lists and i think that's why the spectators started however much you may criticize whatever flaws it may have today uh it, there weren't a lot of restaurants who were interested in any kind of wine list i mean a wine list was mum champagne and matus rosé and you know, something else. Maybe you know, some Mutonka Day would be the Bordeaux, and and some you know, negociant wine from some ignominious negociant in Burgundy. Not not anything we'd know today. That was it. You know, wine lists were pretty basic and crude. And in the Northwest, right where I grew up, you know, there was a budding wine industry, so a lot of people like to have started to have local wines, and you saw you know still French wines. But French wines, you know, as I said, you know. No one was, as you could tell from the prices, who was interested. I mean, things were cheaper. I mean, my, okay, so I was, I, I lusted after a bottle of uh, Latache, 1971, when I was a student. So this was like 1975 or 74, and um, it was in a local wine, wine shops had just been permitted like three years earlier. So there it was. It was $35 retail in the most, probably the most expensive state in America to buy wine in because of the taxes. Because of taxes. Yeah. Okay. And uh, and it was thirty five for Latash and Romane Conti, but the Romane Conti disappeared. So I kept looking for the uh, the Latash, you know. And I finally saved my money, and that was it was like thirty five dollars. My rent, my share of a student housing thing was forty, so close to a month's rent, you could say. So I guess in some ways things may not have changed, although. You know, I don't know. It depends how much you pay for student housing these days. But still, it's the the prices exceeded inflation, cost of living, and inflation by far. Uh, back then, still, you know, paying, you know, eight. I mean, I paid for a guy. I paid eight dollars. You know, wholesale. I paid. You know, the first vintage of uh, La, uh, La London, which was seventy eight. I was offered that full price was twenty five, and they couldn't sell, it, so they offered it to me for seventeen. And I hesitated because I go like. But I can get the Brunei Blonde for 12 you know, and I don't know, like, you know. <laughs> but I, I should have bought it. I mean, I, I hesitated, and I decided, oh, it's so good. I tasted it, and I, I, t- I got, oh, it's so good. I should just buy it. I'll buy out everything they have. And then I called back, like, I, by the time I made my decision, a half hour had passed, it was gone. You know, some smarter person had taken the, seized the opportunity and ran with it. But, but you know, that, those, well, you, you debated, you know, a few bucks here and there because that was a huge amount of money and for wine and there weren't that many people who were willing to pay more than that so you know when i my first job when I, the first internationalist i actually had was was when i went to, went to the red cabbage and that was already laid out as an international list and then when i went to the four seasons i developed an internationalist for them but 
and you know we had everything and then the same thing at trotters i we focused on certain areas we didn't focus necessarily on we 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 built it up and then we kept replenishing the things that were successful and that might have been spanish wines like vegas sicilia or it might have been gaia in particular or other uh, top producers that we liked uh, it could have been um, you know roan we had i had a lot of roan i i was very big in supporting the roan roan was unknown that was a big deal i think for that people noticed i mean i promoted a lot of different wines i was the first to really promote white roans and to and in fact, when I won a competition in 1988, I won a competition for best sommelier in the world in Paris, and I was interviewed on Channel Five in Paris, which is one of their big national uh, channels. And the interviewer said, "So, what's your favorite French wine?" And he thought I'd say Mouton or Lafitte or something like that. I don't know. And I said, "Oh, I love Cote Roti, you know, and, and Hermitage. You know, Chave is one of the oldest producers, you know." And he and he looked at me and said, "What what are those? Never heard of them." <laughs> and I go like. Cote Roti, it's like this, you know, it's just south of where, you know, south of Lyon, it's this beautiful region, they grow Syrah, the Rome, it was planted by the Celts, or the Romans, you know, were familiar with the Vinum Picatum of the, I had to describe it to him, and he looked at the other sommelier who had come in, the French sommelier was on the show with me, was Philippe Forbrock, and he said to him, is that right? <laughs> he wanted verification because here's this American talking about this thing he'd never heard of, and then he said, I thought you would say something like, you know, a first growth Bordeaux or something, you know. But uh, he said, I guess I'll have to look into those. (laughs) So wine in general, even in France, people just, you know, didn't know that much. Not like today. The other thing I did was uh, Gruner Veltliner. No one knew Gruner Veltliner or Riesling from Austria. Yeah, you were early with Austria. I remember that. But the reason I ask is because uh, it seems to me that the sort of international list that Trotters had really became the idea of what a good wine program was for a good 20 years subsequent to that. Mm-hmm. You know, that was kind of the the model for, you know, that and a couple other restaurants for like what a good wine list was supposed to look like, like the best wines from around the world, a big list, you know, 2000 or so selections presented with high end cuisine and a sommelier staff. Yeah. Well, it, it worked. I mean, at, at that time, especially, um, you know, when I, my list wasn't, it wasn't huge. It wasn't as huge as it became after I left. But I, I always focus on things that sold, that I could, that worked with the food. We'd have a large selection of things that, you know, any connoisseur would want. I think the model, you know, was something like Girardet, who had local wines. So we always had California wines. We always had Oregon wines. We had, you know, interesting local things from the United States. In fact, he, he made a point of having a wine from every state that made wine, which was like 48 states. He had a, a section. It was a two-page section, whether the wines were good or not. But he said, you know, we're American. We should at least show them. And how much is it going to cost if we buy one, you know, a six-pack or something of something from Saconet in, you know, Rhode Island or whatever. And, and you know, we'll have wines from all over, and people can see it on a list. And they'll be the best from that state or that area. So that was that was unique. And, uh, and then he also had, you know, the greats. We had verticals of the things that we admired. And I started the vertical uh, ideas, you know, where you have lots of verticals. If you, especially every region I had, that where I had a, wi- a winery that I liked or a winemaker that I admired, we'd have depth. It wouldn't just be like the current release. And that way, you could you could experience, you know, what how the wines aged and how they worked with food. Is that something that the red cabbage had had too, or was that something that you kind of worked out on? Oh uh, well, the red cabbage had some of that, not not like that. That we didn't. Uh, we I did some at the Four Seasons. I had some depth in Bordeaux because we had people who would pay for forty fives or fifty nines. I even sold fifty nine by the glass at the Four Seasons. I developed a system, an Argon sparging system, which is kind of like the 
the precursor a bit clumsier and heavier precursor to the Coravin, but I used to sparge the bottles with, I did an experiment, I took a, an 82 Pichon Lalande and I opened it, took a couple of glasses out, tasted it, and then sparged it with Argon and opened it three months later and uh, and tasted people blind on a bottle I just had opened that day and on the wine that had been sparged for like, you know, four, three or four months, and no one could tell the difference. <laughs> but somebody said, well, I saw you had that argon tank in there, and you've been playing around with it. So um, I guess one of these is probably open for a while. And I said, okay, which one? And they got they got it wrong. <laughs> they chose the wrong one. So, I mean, I, you know, there were things we could do back then that, you know, now with the prices, you, you know, really be pressed to do. And so we developed these... The prices of wine. Yeah, the prices of wine. So you could have verticals and you could... I mean, I remember selling 45s and 48s in the, at the Four Seasons. that, And they had already purchased some of these for like, you know, they purchased them for $50 a bottle or $75 a bottle. I mean, we had older Ekem, I think we paid as much as $125 for a bottle of 62 Ekem. You know, I, I remember the prices because I'm going like... Once I started seeing how much money people had, and weren't they weren't all poor like I I grew up pretty poor. So when I saw people had money, and one hundred and twenty five dollar cost would be you know you could you could double that and still people would buy it. That uh, you know I realized oh, the price of wine is pretty cheap. I mean I started buying stuff from my dad. Even he liked Madeira. I bought him stuff from the nineteenth century that today's worth thousands of dollars a bottle. But back then I was paying less than a hundred. You know because no one really cared about it. that was really dead Madeira port you know older port but especially Madeira. Un- unappreciated so i did a lot to revitalize that actually at trotters that's in addition to like the rhone i re- i revitalized a real interest and in, uh, helped to revitalize an interest in madeira and i was alone for many years until manny burke from rare wine company showed up in the auction house and then i couldn't compete with him anymore but we that we did that we did old old dessert wines uh from the loire valley 30 40 50 year old dessert wines from the loire and then we did a lot with uh, Austria. So I would, I'd go in, but they, they worked for what we were doing. You know, I always made sure they worked. So I, it was things I loved, but also things that I made sure were compatible with the cuisine. So we'd, and we could match them. And so they'd have volume and they would sell through. Because Charlie liked to do vegetable dishes. Yeah. Before, way before that's, now that's quite the thing. But before that was the thing, he wrote that book about vegetables. Oh, yeah. And I imagine that some of those Austrian, Whites would have helped with that. Oh, absolutely. The, the, some some of the drier Gruner Veltliner and and Rieslings uh, that were you know they were definitely dry. But even you know some German wines we sold some German too. But Austrian was the big revelation, and they were much more compatible with with more variety of food that we had. Plus, you know the person who was really developing the market for that was Vin Divino at the time. They they were in Chicago. In, in Chicago, and Terry Tees was was you know was also traveling around but but I we had a real close connection with Vindivino and uh and so we we got first dibs on a lot of the great wines that they were bringing in when did Trotters start to gain a kind of national and international following well that was i think around 90 91 to 93 91 was first he, he a couple of years after I I went there he he really started to uh, get quite a bit of attention and uh but you know, I've you know, it was it was you know six months to a year after I started, we started really getting some momentum, and and then I remember in ninety, it was like ninety three, was it ninety three, ninety ninety one? We made our no, it was ninety one. Ninety one, we made our first trip to Europe, and the New York Times, I believe, uh, had had uh, a little piece that spring on Charlie Trotter. And on, I think Emerald was in there. There were all these young guys that were friends, like it was Emerald, Charlie, 
And I think maybe Norman Van Aken may have been mentioned. Because that's a crew. Those <clears throat> yeah, guys get along yeah, really well. Yeah, well, we, well you well, know, Charlie studied, Charlie, men, Charlie was mentored, and his, the first chef he really worked for was, was, uh, was Norman. And Carrie Nabedian was the sous chef, and she actually interviewed him and then recommended that Norman hire. But So that crew, Charlie with Norman and Carrie, they were very close. And, and then... Uh, he became a good friend of Emeralds, and they hung out a lot, and they were they had a lot of connection, you know, spiritually as well as in terms of the professional interests. And so, uh, uh, you know, Emerald had never really traveled extensively in Europe, so Charlie said we need to do a trip, and this is like '91, and every he had me write letters to all the proprietors of the hotels and restaurants we were going to <laughs> explaining who they are and that they're really serious young american chefs and because at that time you know france was everything you know, american chefs uh, and not even italian chefs had any uh, you know kind of glamorous position yet in the world but you know american chefs certainly not uh, so I wrote these letters, and then I sent a copy. When the article came out, I sent set a, another set of letters with a whole packet that he put together, like with the the most recent publicity on them, and uh, hoping that they get some respect. Uh, didn't happen so much actually. We were pretty anonymous back. It was like people, French chefs that we met were like either ridiculing, you know, us or the, our pretensions, you know, the chefs' pretensions to being craftsmen or even interesting and uh and it was uh, it was interesting it was an interesting cultural uh encounter you know uh, so it was difficult it was really uh interesting there was one chef that uh, we wound up really getting along with and that was unfortunately uh Bernard Loiseau who passed away uh he was so kind he was very interested in what we were doing he was also the only French, it was the only french kitchen in europe that we the only french kitchen we encountered where the equipment was made in america was garland he had garland stoves from from indiana or whatever you know in his kitchen because he thought, felt they were the best quality <laughs> and you know very interesting and of course that didn't endear him either to his peers in in france and then of course he was making the famous water sauces and uh there, there are lots of jokes about that, but he was brilliant, and he, he also was very welcoming and took care of us. But, you know, we had encounters with Georges Blanc that were less than satisfactory, or Marc Minot, we, we, we had not such great encounters there. But we had good, we had good uh, rapport with, uh, I helped set this up with Vauv Clicquot, so Marie Giuliano, who was running it at the time, received us in... in uh, she in, in, she was close with Charlie. Yeah, she, yeah. Well, yeah. She knew me first, and then she got to know Charlie. I, I knew her because of the award I had for the best sommelier in America, and then in France. And I had done some cuvées for you know some special bottlings for Four Seasons uh, in in Seattle when they appeared in the West Coast with my name on them. You know, in the in eighty nine, eighty eight, eighty nine, and and so when I introduced her to him, you know, she was really enamored and loved his f- food, and he she invited him and Emerald to come to france so that was another trip we went to france and they cooked there and um they she had patricia wells come for lunch and a number of critics from france were tasting the food it was really a great introduction and there was they got a lot of respect from the critics but from the other chefs it was much harder and there was a lot of skepticism so it was interesting and i think you know now just uh, well already by when was it 2004 maybe there was a I did a seminar with Charlie and we had a number of people including Alice Waters come in England called the American Food Revolution <laughs> so in that 10 year period like 93 94 to 2004 you know America the English French chefs they were run by French chefs like Raymond Blanc Raymond Blanc helped organize this 
And it was, they're acknowledging the American food revolution. They're saying perhaps the most exciting things in the world today are in America and then maybe Spain. And then Spain kind of rose in the meantime. But, but it was just the dawn of what was happening in Spain, or recognition at least of what was happening in Spain. And you had actually done a little pastry chef work at Trotter's at one point. <laughs> well, you know, I, uh, Michelle Geyer, who, who is a she, she, pastry chef there for a while, when, when I, I, I said, I used the term chef and she took umbrage, you know, she was irate actually. She said, you were never a chef. I go like, okay, I did the pastries. I cooked all the pastries for about four months uh, and Charlie, when, when Charlie had to fire the pastry, former pastry chef. So I, you know, I, I didn't create anything. I wasn't the creator. I, I followed the recipes and I, uh, you know, adjusted them and did things like, I mean, I knew how to cook. I, I learned how to cook from my mother who taught me, you know, how to French sauces. I was always interested. I thought it'd be interesting. I loved cooking. I loved food. So um, I started, I think I I recognized that I would never be the uh, star football player of uh, my high school team or, uh, you know, and the things I was interested in had no uh, appeal to anyone in my, you know, in my society, in my milieu at the time. It was like I liked cy- cycling and uh, playing soccer and I couldn't even get the schools to do a soccer team at that time because they didn't they felt it was an insurance issue or whatever, but um, uh, I I could cook. I found out because I started bringing stuff to school because uh, I'd I'd bake some stuff and I made pot of and cream puffs and and I I bring them and share. And my friends would go like, oh, who you know who made this? This is pretty good. I go like, well, I made it, you know. And they go like, whoa, you know. And uh, so I I realized that girls like guys who could cook. So I might not win the I might not be a Letterman, but I but I. I knew a way to their heart, so I, I continued with that. And I thought, and I never thought it'd be a professional, uh, you know, occupation. I thought it would just be fun to do. And I still love cooking, but uh, and I did wind up cooking. I did a, I, I cooked occasionally for the staff at uh, at uh, Trotters. I also uh, I, I did a dish. I think uh, I did one dish when when Tracy Desjardins was the chef at Rubicon. We had a 125 year retrospective of Pichon Lalande with Mayleon. Showing up for uh, about four days, we did a tasting of like almost every vintage that they had for any decent vintage for 125 years, and I suggested a course. We were trying to come up with different courses for all the dinners and lunches we had to do, and I said, "Well, you, you should make you should make kind of like a Viennese kind of liver dumpling thing, like maybe it was foie gras, foie gras dumplings with this nice veal broth. It'll be refreshing, so we're not going to be too filled, but you know, there's some meatiness to it." And she goes like, "How do you make a?" foie gras dumpling and I go like well I'll make okay well this is how you do it I gave her a recipe and that I figured out from just a modified liver labor dumpling and anyway so I she said I've been trying to make this and I can't get it to work so I said well yeah oh what are you doing so oh, adjust it this way use use uh more egg and less flour you gotta it'll be lighter actually and she goes really and I go like yeah because you know, whatever the protein will so she said, why don't you just make it? So I went up making this course for the dinner. Or I cooked with, and I, I did a dinner with Charlie after I, you know, years later I did one in Canada. We had a Tetsuya walk sure. you know, from, from, Australia. Uh, from Australia, Charlie and I, we each did a course. They were also close. Yeah, they Him were very Charlie. close. Yeah, Tetsuya, he and Tetsuya loved each other. Tetsuya flew out for the funeral, like, on a, on the spur of the moment. We didn't know if he could even make it because of the distance he had to travel, but... Um, but yeah, he we did this dinner in this home, and and it was an auction lot. He, you know, Charlie loved it. Was very generous to charities, and he had an auction lot that he did gave away for a charity. And it was, he offered my services as a sommelier and Tetsuya, and he were going to cook each cook a course, and uh, 
so I did this thing that was a modified dish that my mother made, uh, which was a dish I really loved. It was in Hungarian, it's called tarhonya, but in in uh, in Yiddish and Romanian they call it farfel. It's basically it's like a semolina dish. It's like a pasta dish. Sure, and, I've had that farfel and, before. Yeah, and 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 I I. I most people I say farvel, they think it's awful because they never had it. But real tarhonya, real egg pasta, it's like a pasta that you would make, like a spätzle kind of a dish. And uh, But the way I, my mother made it and the way I made it, you add broth and you stir, almost like you would a risotto. So you keep stirring it and it incorporates the liquid. And so I made it with this incredible, I, I made it with a, uh, a game bird veal stock and, and black truffles. And... Uh, Charlie and Tootsie complimented me on the dish. They said it was like the best dish. Of course, I said, well, I got to choose what wine I went. They let me choose the wine that went with my dish, and I chose the 59 Lafitte. I said, I think that's a pretty good uh, match. <laughs> but uh, anyway, it was fun. It was, uh, I love cooking, so it's nice to be in a profession where I can sometimes exercise my, my impulse to cook without having to do it every day which is very demanding. I have a great deal of respect for all chefs because no matter where they are, they work harder than any other profession I know. You ended up moving to the West Coast. I, yeah, well, I'm from the West Coast, so I moved back. I, um, uh, my parents were both ill, and, uh, and I had to be closer to them. They, I had a daughter by this time, and they had hardly ever seen her after the first two years because they were so they were kind of incapacitated my father had uh parkinson's but it it also degenerates your motor skills and everything so he was unable to travel anymore and my mother was going through chemo and that's when i decided uh i needed really needed to be closer and i didn't know if i could move back to seattle i explored that opportunity but uh i made a phone call to daniel Jonas. I said, Daniel, do you know of anything? And he said, no, but you should call Drew. I think he's interested in doing something out west. So the second phone call I made was to Drew, and Drew said, I'm, I'm going out next week, and I'm thinking of opening a restaurant in San Francisco with Tracy Desjardins. And I go like, oh, I've been at her house, in, or her aunt's house, I should say, in L.A. And I go like, yeah, that, she's great. So I went out the next week, too, and uh, we looked at the site, and I said, okay. That was a pretty quick and easy decision. I didn't have to think about it very much. I, the minute I, from the minute I decided, I made uh, two calls, and that was it. How had you met Daniel Jonas? Well, when I was actually competing for the uh, sommelier competition, he heard about it, and he, I hadn't known him, but he so he called me. He called me out of the blue. He found out I don't know how he got the phone number, and he said, you know, if if you're going to be in Paris, you know, I'm planning on being in Paris around that time of the competition, and maybe we can get together. You know, and I think I'd met him earlier, maybe a little bit earlier, but not not much. Around that time is when we first met, and I think he'd read about me in the Wine Spectator or something, and I'd read about him. And uh, oh, I know, and I'd come to New York for the national competitions for the Best Million in America uh, a couple of times. I, I met him on one of those occasions, and so and we'd kept in touch. And so he invited me to dinner like uh, two or three nights before the competition. At uh, it was the the bureau chief for Time Magazine. He happened to know him, I guess, through through the restaurant, and um, so he he prepared dinner. And then it, it was a series of blind tastings for me, right? So it was uh, quite quite good because I did very well at, at the dinner. I was very encouraged by that. And so uh, Daniel and I have known each other since then. That was at least eighty eight, eighty maybe eighty six. Or during the competition in New York, but we really got closer in '88. What was it like working for Drew? 
Um, Drew was great. Drew Drew is so exciting. So Charlie, it was always intense, and it was uh, and and it, and he was always driving you. He was driving himself. He was driving you. With Drew, it was like, uh, well, you know, Larry, this is going to work. You know, how, you, you know, we have you. We have we have De Niro and Robin Williams and Coppola, and we've got a great site, and the rent is good. You know, we're going to make this work. And he was very uh, loose, you know, like with Charlie and at Four Seasons, I had been very, very looking at the numbers all the time and trying to figure out how little or how much to spend. And Charlie was, if Charlie thought it was a great vintage, though, he'd break all the, he'd break the bank. He'd say, just go for it. And then when I worked for Drew, Drew was a little nervous because he said, I'm a little concerned that you didn't really have a budget because you built that wine cellar. It's so huge. You know, I don't know if we can afford to do something like that. And I said, look, I worked at Four Seasons and I had, I had budgets, believe me, and and they were very restrictive, but I made it work. And, you know, and, and so I said, I'll, you know, don't worry about it. And, and he, he did worry a little bit. You know, all the, all the managers there, except for me, were from New York originally. So the chef was from, was, was Tracy, who came up from L.A., but had grown up in California. But all the rest of the people, Tom Sadinsky, who I just emailed like last week, and he was the first GM. He came, he worked at the New York restaurants, uh, he, I think he worked for Piero Longo at one point, no, and then he worked for Drew, and and then we and the assistant managers Drew knew and tried to recruit. Michael Bonadies was his right hand man, and he recruited a lot of the people. So they were all people we knew. The people from New York would come out to help support us, especially at the beginning. And then uh, he brought in an assistant for me that he trusted. Uh, Rebecca Chapa, who had sure. worked for Kevin's Raley. So he had a New York crew, so he could keep track of my wayward uh, ways or whatever. And, uh, but then out, over time, he, he realized that I was pretty trustworthy and that I wasn't going to bank. If, if, if we had a, I did spend a lot of money, but everything I bought increased in value enormously. And so he wasn't, he wasn't worried. And we, we did have some financial, there was a downturn around 2000. And at that time, uh, uh, you know, Robert De Niro's uh, financial guys were a little worried that we had too much inventory, and they were right. I already had thought on my own independently. I had told, I talked with Drew about lowering the inventory because I said, it looks like things are going to slow down. We should be prepared. You know, we have a lot of inventory, and we can we can cycle through it. And then we got a note from Robert De Niro's guy and saying, you know, we want you to cut your inventory, and I go like, no problem, <laughs> we're already on it. So. You know, I did cut it back, but then it, it, it grew again. But, it you know, we never. I think we peaked around 2,000 in terms of our total inventory value. It was just too hard to maintain. I mean, we did inventory every month. We It took, like, three days. It took six people three days to do the inventory. We had a rent space in, in next door, somewhat like Charlie wound up doing with buying the house next door. We had to rent the whole basement of the next door building to put all the wine in. I waited on Robert De Niro once and it scared the hell out of me. I mean, he was a scary guy. He is a scary guy. I mean, when he wants something, it's very firm. Yeah. I, I didn't view him as scary. I was scared by him because I have, I'm in so much awe of him. When I first met him, I actually couldn't recognize him. He came into Mon Rocher. I, was, I knew he'd come for the dinners before Rubicon was open. We were still building it. And and, and Drew said, come out. We're going to do a dinner. Didn't, you know, De Niro's going to be there. And so I was, I was doing inventory, receiving stuff, you know, look, going over the wines that we had for that night and trying to count how many bottles we had and organize them. And this guy with kind of scraggly hair and an old leather jacket, and I could, was walk, walked in the door at Mon Rocher. And if you know Mon Rocher, the old Mon Rocher, it had a plate glass window in front, but you were dark in the rest of the dining room, especially in the day when it was so bright out, it was really pretty dark inside. And so this guy, not much taller than me, maybe a little bit taller, five, I don't know, five, seven, I don't know how tall he is anyway, but, but, 
Larry, I'm going to break it to you. Yeah. He's a little taller. Oh, he's than taller you. than I am. I know. <laughs> okay, he he's taller than me, but he's not six four or something like <laughs> right, that. You know? right, so, right. And I'd never met him before, but there was this guy coming in, and I go like, "Who are you, Mr. De Niro?" As he got up to me, and I could see his face. I go like, "Oh," but I was obviously trying to direct this person, this homeless person or whatever, out the door. So I did. I didn't. Uh, I didn't uh, recognize him, and you know, and I think that's his genius. You know, I, I've been in situations like that before where he's been people have been looking for him and they fail to recognize him because he uh, he's not uh, he's not what they imagine. He's not he's not this glowing personality that you will notice down the street and say, oh, that's Robert De Niro. In fact, he blends in very well, which is part of the genius that he has as an actor. He knows how to blend into a role. He knows how to t- assume a role, and. Um, but uh, you know, and he he he's shy. I think the thing to know about him is that he he's, and I understand. You know, actors having worked with actors, especially people that are so successful like De Niro or Robin Williams, people assume that actors will be very pleased that for for complete strangers to barge in on their intimate moments in life at a dinner or on the street, you know, and just and tell them how much they love them. And in fact, it gets a little irritating uh, because you're really imposing on their on their privacy and people just fail to understand it because they're so excited and so you know inspired by those actors and the roles that they play that they think this is a good thing they'll know how much i love them well you know i guess they know that when they see the the box office numbers they know that it, they've been loved and they know that they're you know they hope i hope that most actors are pretty secure not all i i early in my career i ran into tom and dick's mothers and they definitely needed attention at that point. You know, there are actors who do want attention all the time, but that's because perhaps they had more attention in the past than they did in the present. But, you know, De Niro is very shy. He He's very introverted, and I think, uh, I mean, that's just my, my you know, tangential, you know, observation as a person who's not that close to him. But as a person who got to observe him, he, he's a very sensitive person. And I think he's, uh, 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 you know... He's scary because he's so, you know, reserved. I think he doesn't want to tell you anything, and he does want certain things, but he, and he doesn't want a lot of interaction. He just wants it, and he doesn't doesn't need the interaction. Uh, and in fact, I think he's afraid of too much interaction with with complete strangers or just in daily life. So, but I, you know, it's, uh, I, you know, I saw I saw all sorts of things like that. I think uh, you know with other people too that demands are made. When I worked for you know Francis Ford Coppola, people just think you know if they just want to do something for that person, you know, for the actor, for Fra- or for the director, that that person should be grateful or that person should you know uh, you know enj- appreciate their 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 uh, inspiration or their the way they've been inspired by that person's work. And you know it just gets it gets to be too much because so many millions of people know these these actors and directors and artists that uh, that it's overwhelming. So I, I never I, I never felt in uh, uh, I never felt intimidated by Robert De Niro. I just always wished you know personally that I could have had a closer relationship with him because I admired him so much. But I never expressed that because I knew that's that's just something else he doesn't need in his life. And. Um, but I never was, I, I didn't find him intimidating or scary or anything. But people can because I think people go to him with a series of of expectations that he is intimidating because of the roles he plays and is so capable at. I felt the same way about Mrs. Doubtfire, so maybe you had the same 
relationship. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, Robin. Uh, Robin is his own set. I mean, he was he was intimidating too, just because you know he was such a great comedian. But he he's such a great comedian that you know he can disarm you instantly uh, with his jokes. He'll just make fun of you, or you know, he he made fun of me frequently, and he also was able to imitate you know like what you know, kind of a standard um, sommelier. Like one time. Uh, we had a lot of people, you know, our restaurant in San Francisco, uh, Rubicon was very successful. So we had lots of people from all walks of life. We had uh, politicians, we had diplomats, we had uh, we had actors. So Don Johnson and Cheech Moran were shooting a, a series Nash Bridges or something like that. And, and they were having dinner one night, uh, one of many nights, but uh, unannounced in walks Robin and his, and his wife uh, and uh, family. And they wanted, uh, we were, we were, you know, walking around town, we decided we'd come here for dinner tonight. Do you have a place? And we go like, yeah, it'll take just a second. We'll get it set up. And he said, anybody here I know? And I go like, well, yeah, Don Johnson and Cheech are upstairs. You know, they're just, they're in midway through dinner. He said, where are they? I go, well, they're about to get their entrees. So he says, oh, so he rushes into the kitchen from the door. He rushes into the kitchen, grabs a service napkin, puts it on his arm like a waiter, grabs, he says, which are for, which are for them, says, hi, chef, which are for Don and Cheech? And he goes up, he has two plates in his hand, and, and they're talking. They don't even see who's coming to the table to serve them, right? And uh, they're talking, and, and he puts down one plate and says, here's your roadkill du jour, and here's it's monsieur, and for you, your rat stew. <laughs> And and he steps back, folds his arms, and they're still talking. And it takes a few seconds to sink in, and then they go, "Huh?" Don kind of looks up and goes, "Like, what?" And he sees it. You know, he, they just lose it. They both are falling on the floor with laughter because it's so funny. And he, you know, he just he, he's able to do those things so well that uh, he can uh, he disarms you. You know, you just laugh. When did you start using the bow tie? Oh, I had a girlfriend. Loved bow ties, and I had to. I, I was working at the Red Cabbage. We didn't. I wore neckties, and um, you know, we we. It was not real formal, but I had a necktie usually. And uh, she said, "Well, I like bow ties, and you'd look good in a bow tie." And I go, "Like yeah, they look dorky. I, I don't want to wear a bow tie." And she she said, "Well, uh, she kept at this for like a couple of years. Uh, it was a it was a good it was a long longish relationship, and um, finally we were in uh, we we were in Seattle still, so." She went in. We were in walking into Nordstrom's where she was going to buy something, and uh, she she there was a, a display on the first floor of men's accessories, and there was a, a display, fresh display rack of bow ties, and she said, "Oh, that's a nice bow tie." You'd, and then she looked at me and said, "Oh, forget it. You'd never even be able to figure out how to tie one anyway." So, she went shopping, and I said, oh, "I'll just wait. You know, I'll walk around." And so I went back to the counter and I said, "I'll show her. I can tie one. It's not that I don't want to wear one. I can know. I know how to. I can tie this." So the guy taught me how to do it, and and I wore it, and then um, it just became something that I was. When I went to work at uh, the Four Seasons, when I left the Red Cabbage and went to work at the Four Seasons, I had to wear a tux. That's <laughs> that's how long ago it was in the formal dining room of the Four Seasons Hotel. I wear a tuxedo, so it came with a clip-on bow tie, and I said, "Well, can I wear my own bow ties?" So I started buying bow ties. You know, I had one or two that I that she had bought me, or, and then uh, but then pretty soon people started giving me bow ties at Christmas or something. You know, they'd give me a gift because they'd say, "Oh, we never we don't know how to wear bow ties, but you wear one." So you know, this is such a beautiful bow tie. We, we thought we'd give you a couple or whatever because they weren't they uh, they'd give me two or three at a time. Sometimes you know, people would travel see something interesting and. Uh, and then when I, so I just wound up with like, I think I have like 300 bow ties by this point, you know, I have so many different ties over the years. 
And uh, it became a signature because I had to wear one at, at Four Seasons for four years I was there. And then when I went to Charlie Trotter's, I already had the ties and and they were much more practical. They don't fall into anyone's soup or fall out of your jacket. And for a person of my short stature, a necktie is cut a little bit long. If you don't get the ends exactly level, then uh, then it winds up being too long. So you have to mess with it. Whereas a bow tie, once you get it measured for your neck, you know, you just tie. I don't even look in the mirror. Just like tying a shoe. You were at Rubicon right about the time that Colt Cabernet really started to take off. What was that like to be in California during that period of time? Well, it was crazy because you know uh, it was uh, it was the the rise of California Cabernet coincided with the rise of the tech world, and so all these guys were billionaires in paper. You know, part of the bust of 2001, but they 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 thought they were all multi billionaires and they wanted great California wine and they. And anything that got some point, there were all these new wineries, Colgan, Harlan, Bryant Family, Screaming Eagle, they all, all were developing like 90, 91, 92. That was when they began. And uh, I remember buying the first Screaming Eagle, uh, first uh, Harlan for like $44. It was like $41 a bottle or something. And it went up to 44 the next year or something, a slight increase. And it was really unknown. I hadn't read any reviews or anything, but I loved it. I thought the wine was delicious and... Um, and I called some friends, one guy who ran NASDAQ and another guy who was at uh, Intel. And I said, you, you guys love these California wines. you got to buy some of this. You never I don't know if you've had this or heard of it. And they said, no, we've never heard of this. So, you know, Harlan, is it any good? I go, I said, really? It's really good. They said, well, it's $41. It's not real cheap. You know, but I said, you should buy cases. So I think they each got four cases. Uh, they kept buying it from then on, but it went... I, I had it on the list, I think, for like eighty dollars or a hundred, not not even a hundred. And then I went. I was in Monterey for the Masters of Highland Inn Masters of Food and Wine at the time, and I went into the store that I always go into at, uh, or I went to. It's closed in the meantime. It was uh, right there at the entrance to Carmel, and they had on a shelf with this Harlan. With this Harlan, and it was one hundred and twenty-five dollars retail. And I go like, well, that's weird. I only I, I have it for less than that. I think it's like a, under a hundred on the list. So I went back and I asked. I think Raj was already working for me at that point. I said, "What's up with this? Why is it so expensive at that store? I can't figure it out." And he said, "It got a hundred points from the Spectator." And I go like, "Really?" And that raised the price that much. I mean, that was really kind of unheard of that the price would just jump that much. And so, um, and then the next year, the the wholesale price was like one hundred and twenty-five, and the year after that it was like. 200 and it kept going up and up and people kept paying for it and they just wanted access i'd have people come into the restaurant and try to buy the wine at full markup which as you already can guess wasn't all that high uh, just to have it and uh, i caught one of the bartenders once with two cases of wine on the i came in like after lunch and on the bar there were two cases of wine i opened them up and i see like bryant family harlan you know i go like what's all this and they go oh the bartender sold it at lunch and i go like no, he, he. What do you mean he sold it? She, well, they they paid full. They put paid full wineless price, but they want to take it to go. And I said they're not doing that. I said, you know, the price is right, but I can't. I don't have access. They have to come and eat here if they want to drink it. They can drink it here. And so, but that was a constant struggle. I, I knew. I I'm pretty sure some things disappeared, you know, that way that I wasn't aware of. But I caught that one one instance at least. What was it like working with Raj's in his more youthful days? <laughs> when he had hair? <laughs> when he was a skinny young guy with hair? And 
he uh he was great he was uh he was very eager to learn and he he wanted he he started to learn about blind tasting you know he came from the you know cia and he hadn't really done that much with wine but he had taken the wine class there and so i sent him off to work at wineries in summer he worked at uh worked for josh jensen i sent him down there to clara to work there and he worked harvest there he he heard him i think he got hurt a little bit but he loved it and um then he started traveling to europe and then it was all over. Then he was in love with Burgundy. So that was, that was the that was it. You know, for him. He and he did so well. I mean, he, his blind tasting. You know, he got stronger and stronger in the first. You know, six months. He was pretty much a genius at it. And and you actually started up your own wine project called Sarita after your daughter. Yeah. So that started in. Uh, I actually had a, a Du Chapeau with with the first iteration was uh, Du Chapeau with Daniel Jonas. And he was going to sell the wine in New York, basically, and I'd I'd be responsible for sourcing it and making it or putting it together. And it was basically negotiating stuff. I'd buy stuff and blend it and and make up a wine. Uh, And um, it was pretty reasonably priced, and it was good. We sold a lot of it. But then his partners in his importing business, you know, thought that maybe a you know in competition with the business that they had financed with him so that kind of ended and uh and then I took the money and started Sarita that was about 90 94 95 so we started we started uh like in when I moved to California so that was like 90 93 yeah 93 and then 95 would have been when Sarita began 95 96 and the first vintage I made is of uh, Sarita was uh, two, 90, was uh, 1997, and I kept that going until the 2005 vintage. But then I had a problem with my partner. I didn't have a partner. I just rolled what I made out of Du Chapeau, and I was able to finance myself. And then when I thought of leaving the restaurant world, uh, not because I wanted to, but because... Um, I thought we were having trouble in the restaurant industry in San Francisco, and I thought, well, you know, maybe I'll just you know, morph into making wine because my Sarita was doing pretty well. But then, then I took a partner, and that didn't work out so well. But the the good news is that because of that that um, dispute with a partner, I mean, it wasn't it wasn't over money because he wanted he wanted I was making so much money for the company that he wanted to grow the company, and I said if we grow the company, then our margins won't. He, you know, he just he he thought scalability. He was a Wall Street guy, and he thought, well, we can make more if we just scale it. And I said, you'll lose your profit because I can no longer do all the things I'm doing. You know, so you're gonna have to hire people. And um, anyway, so we had this dispute, and finally we resolved it just in time for me to buy vineyard land in Oregon. So if I hadn't, if if he hadn't wavered and hesitated so long and prevented me from getting the money out of Sar- out of Sarita, then. Uh, I would have already done something else. I would have probably uh, had a lease and land in Washington, but not owned it. Whereas, you know, the opportunity was just perfect. That things, it, it just worked out, or I was able at least to seize another opportunity that I wouldn't have otherwise without having had Sarita and also not having had a, a contentious partner. <laughs> so it was, it was, it all worked out. In the end, it's, it couldn't have been better. How did you end up finding that property in Oregon? Well, I was, uh, I, I had, uh, there's a local guy, Mark Tarlov, who uh, loved wine, and he was doing a film called Copycat in uh, San Francisco with Sigourney Weaver, and he lived at the Mandarin Oriental, which is like two blocks away from Rubicon, and I think he stayed there deliberately so he could come to Rubicon, because he knew me through Daniel, and he drank Rumier every day. He wanted Rumier every day. I go like, you, you can't just drink Rumier, because you have to have some kind of background, context with to place Rumi and have great wine. So 
I uh, said, you should try some California and Oregon wines. I'll only let you buy Rumier if you can drink one bottle at least a week of something local, whether you like it or not, you know, just to expose yourself. So he wound up, we had this conversation about, you know, what places in California would be good for growing Pinot or in, in, in other, elsewhere in the United States or in the world to make wine that could be maybe as complex and satisfying as Burgundy. And I, and I named a couple of places. I named Santa Rita Hills. I named, I named Occidental or the extreme Sonoma Coast. And I, I named uh, the Willamette Valley. So I said, especially I like Eolamity Hills and, and Dundee Hills. Those areas are really great. And so, you know, a few years later, when he was thinking of leaving Manhattan after 911, you know, he, uh, he bought a place in Occidental, in, you know, near Occidental. And then he, uh, then he wound up getting a lease on Seven Springs. And he asked me for advice on, on all those points. I'm sure he asked for many other sommeliers advice, but, but, uh, but, uh, I helped him start that company and, uh, I got him interested in, in that wine to begin with. And so around 2010, I, uh, he asked me to come and, and uh, help to run the company. So that by that time, he had grown it a little bit. So I, I left Coppola and started to run that company. And then when I was running that company, I looked across the street, and there was this farm that was growing Christmas trees, cherries, and plums, and wheat. And I go, like, that land is, like, just as good as this land, or maybe it's even better. It depends. You know, I, we don't know, but it's going to pro- be very comparable. And uh, so I, I proceeded to, ma- to make a, a negotiation with the owner of the farm, the Bob and Betty Jansen, whose families had owned it for a long, long time. They'd been there, you know, since the end of the last, since the beginning of this century, the end of the last. And... Um, when I left, uh, when I left the company, finally a couple of years later, they didn't buy it. They it was already kind. Of, they could have probably had it, but they didn't sell it. I mean, they they didn't they didn't uh, pursue the the purchase of that land. And even though the seller, you know, the Jansons did call them and try to get it, and then Argyle tried to get it. So Argyle, which is also next door on just a little bit lower on the hill than Seven Springs, they tried to buy it, but they the Jansons wanted to retain water rights for another property. They wanted to transfer the rights. And, they, and because it's an Australian company that owns Argyle, they are very definitely concerned about water, even in Oregon. So uh, I wound up being able to get the land. But it's just it was it's such a beautiful property, and uh, you know, now that I've developed it, you know, I've planted it. It's it really is is. I go there and I pinch myself. Really, I go like, I really own this. It's like I can't believe it. It's 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 insane to think. I you know, I always thought I wanted a bit of land, but I never thought I could own such a beautiful well-placed property, you know, that, that I wound up with. Larry, we'll have to have you back on the show to talk more about that and other winemaking ventures that you've been involved in. Oh, thank you. Thank you for being here today. Right. Thank you. Larry Stone. All Drink to That is hosted and produced by myself, Levy Dalton. Aaron Skella has contributed original pieces. Editorial assistance has been provided by Bill Kimsey. The show music was performed and composed by Rob Moose and Thomas Bartlett. Show artwork by Alicia Tanoyan. T-shirts, sweatshirts, coffee mugs, and so much more, including show stickers, notebooks, and even gift wrap are available for sale if you check the show website, alldrinktothatpod.com. That's I-L-L, drinktothatpod.com, which is the same place you'd go to sign up for our email list or to make one of the crucially important donations that help keep this show operating. You can donate from anywhere using PayPal or Stripe on the show website. 
Remember to hit subscribe or to follow this show in your favorite podcast app, please. That's super important to see every episode. And thank you for listening.